aukon langaritia mafan am on paurusia minuan faiokasi kalapaki atlangkanga si kalapakania. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Over with me in uh, Belgium, we have Jasper Charlet. That is correct. Yes. And uh, today we are going to talk about his language, um, Karite. Karite is, yeah. And, and specifically, the chamber opera that uh, you're producing called uh, Heira, right? Uh, yeah, Heira. And so we're going to get into that. First, before we get into that, Conlanger is entirely supported by our patrons over at Patreon. Uh, if you go there and pledge, uh, you can get early episodes. You can get access to the scripts for shorts that I am in the process of writing. Um, and you can get that access to that immediately, right? Right when you pledge, you just pay your amount, and you can get access. So uh, go to Patreon.com/slash/conlangery, and you can show your support, uh, whatever level you are comfortable with. Okay. So people will know you from your um, from your. Uh, Reddit mostly um, as Jasper with an I, mm -hmm. um, but um, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit uh, before we get into the la the language and the opera? Can you talk a little bit about what got you into conlanging? Um, yeah, of course. Um, basically, when I did my high school studies, um, one of my main interests at that point. Uh, besides music, which I eventually turned into my career, uh, was actually languages. And I chose the options that would give me, I think I had more than like 16 hours a week, just language language learning. I had French, I had English, I had German, I had everything. Um, and at some point, kind of to pass the time, one of my good friends uh, introduced me to Conlang and we were just, you know, really just messing around, turning around a bit, trying to, you know, get kind of to the end of the day. And um, it's something I just kept on doing. And then after that, like the small collaboration, it didn't really get anywhere. Um, I was just toying around a little bit on my own. And then I discovered the existence of Proto-Indo-European, which really, yeah, it was something that really caught my attention. And um, I was just toying around a bit. And I was completely inexperienced with most of the things I had some very vague ideas of, 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 you know, like what is an inflection, what is a conjugation, how do cases work, uh, which I knew from Latin class, these kind of things. But I had no idea how to really get started on anything. And then I basically, I joined the, uh, what was then the Skype group um, of the, the Conlang Reddit. Uh, and there I was lucky enough to meet Dark Gamma, um, who's also known as Elector Dark. He's one of the main admins of the Conlang Wikia. And um, I basically had the privilege and the luck um, to just bump into him. And I, I told him about my idea that I wanted to incorporate something with Proto-European. 
And um, he basically decided that it was a challenge that he wanted to to have a look at with me. And that basically evolved in a collab, um, which is almost six years old at this point, uh, where we're just going through Proto-European uh, and we've really just tried to make a, a full-fledged collab out of it. I find it very interesting, the side of your story that you said, basically, you found out about Indo-European linguistics, and this was something you found through conlanging. I think a lot of conlangers do come into linguistics through conlanging specifically and end up getting very educated on it without necessarily the same formal training as linguists have. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's always an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I... I eventually got a PhD in linguistics, but I knew a lot about linguistics before I started through conlanging. So that's a, sort of a, a mirroring thing there. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Karite. So from what I understand, uh, just from perusing the site, it is a, an Indo-European language and uh, sort of its own branch off of Indo-European, and they are situated in the Iberian Peninsula? Um, roughly, yeah. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. like, and they got there, I'm not sure exactly the timeline, it seems like they got there migrating alongside the Celts? Um, for some part, yes. Uh, the earliest inscriptions can be dated to 500 BC um, to Norban in, in southern France, and then basically... Uh, roughly um, at the time that the Roman conquests and the expansion happened, they started migrating further westwards um, into the Iberian Peninsula, where they stayed for a good while. And then eventually um, they, as part of Spain in that case, they helped with the colonization of America. And basically a bunch of, of Karite speakers ended up living there. Um, and it's I did a really big um, write-up about the history. It's also on the site. Um, I did a brief summary uh, on one of the Reddit posts about it. They are mostly, especially in the time of, of the, the opera, uh, the main focus is on the Iberian Peninsula, yes. Yeah, and it looks like a lot of the stuff on the site is sort of sketchy. I was, I, I will, oh, I will say I looked at the important figures on there uh, and like I saw Francisco Franco, I'm like, uh-oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That that also means the end um, of Karait in in Europe. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that well, that is probably what I would expect his significance to be. Then, considering yeah, what he actually did in the real world to minority languages. Um, mm -hmm. But there are in this alternate history, I presume. Karite speakers through the former Spanish Empire in uh, Mexico, South America, Central America? Um, mostly centralized in, in a specific part of Argentina, um, which in the alternate history, eventually during the uh, decolonization, also got its own independence status. Um, but that's something for, for much, much later. Nicolás would be very interesting to hear, interested to hear that. Um, all right. Um, so 
you have this whole history going back to um, 500 BC. Mm -hmm. uh, that in itself is very interesting. And um, what was your method for going through the phonology? It looks like you have, or, or going through the 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 changes that led from uh, Proto-Indo-European into um, Karaite. It looks like you have stages with Proto-Karaite st stages, Old Karaite, Umayyad, which I presume is during the, um, the Arab control of uh, Spain, and then monarchic mm -hmm. on your site. So what were the general ideas when you were building that history? Um, well, first and foremost, we wanted to come up with something that felt tangible in a way, something that was relatable, um, something that clearly was like its own thing, but that you could also find connections into other things. So especially when we did the whole rework a few years ago, we really looked at um, how do we relate the changes that happen on a phonological level uh, with the, the changes in, in the, the branches that we're like the closest to. Um, like, like for example, how how do how does Celtic um, treat this particular series of of stops or something, or um, how does Greek uh, like what does Greek do to the syllabic resonance and and these kind of things? Do we have the triple reflex? Uh, all these kind of things. We really wanted to to make sure that it fit the the isogloss theory and and that everything would make sense instead of just being like existing in a vacuum. And then we added a few like fun things of our own, a few things that really like spice it up a bit and give it its its own identity. There's a, especially in the beginning, there's a really fun um, retention in a sense from the very first sketches, uh, which is where the um, Indo-European uh, labioviolar series basically got turned into uh, labiodental fricatives, uh, and it, it's a change that you can you know you can really justify it, but the the way we thought at that time, which for me was like the beginning of, of my experience with actual linguistics, um, and I saw the small labialization mark in the IPA. And at that point, I was actually scared of it because I felt like a sound needs to be a single letter. If it's, you know, if it consists of actual like extra diacritics or um, these kind of things, I felt like this is this is scary. This is not very perceptible to me. So it was really the it's, it's retention from then, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm much more open and I'm much more yeah uh, experienced with these kind of things. But it's it's a specific characteristic that actually stayed with it throughout uh, the years. That's that's interesting. Sort of your own maybe misperceptions led into that. But so the the labiovelars became labiodental fricatives. I don't I don't see that being too unusual of a change, but that's that's interesting mm -hmm. and possibly sort of makes it a unique branch of the Indo-European. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about what actually made me interested in bringing you on the show uh, is this opera, uh, Heira, that you are producing and uh, we will. I will link to the Indiegogo. I'm going to try to get this edited and out early enough that people can actually uh, donate to that. 
but so you have um, this opera Hera. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind that and like how the language is used and how like the world building behind the language fits into that? Yeah. So basically, I've I've always been a really big big fan of opera, um, and it's it had this this uniqueness to it, and that really I can't really explain it, but it's just something that 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 always drew my attention. And um, like very early on, I, I really had the idea of you know like this is like a, a small branch of classical music that I really want to explore further. And I, I had the idea of of you know I want to create an opera quite early. Um, and it actually, the, the first time I tried to, to turn it into an actual draft instead of just an idea and a dream uh, coincided with the time I actually started Conlang, which made it really interesting because for me, the, the combination of, of the two was actually really obvious. Um, it, it, it's For a lot of people, it's not an obvious combination, of course, but for me, it felt like I, I have like a really big passion and hobby and interest in, in everything regarding the conlang thing and the linguistics associated with it. And I also spend a lot of time in the music. So, I mean, why don't I just like combine them and get the best of both worlds? And then that sort of idea just continued like like getting fleshed out and I tried different stories and different kind of inspirations. And eventually um, I settled on, on you know, Karaid, as, as I said before, and it made even more sense when we decided that, you know, we need a story that fits with the language. It's, it's something that should be closely associated with it. Um, so why don't we have a look at uh, Indo-European mythology instead of just the linguistics um, and just try to derive a story with those typical Indo-European elements where we have like specific like deities that reappear with different names um, or even if they come from the same original word, uh, these kind of things. And then we basically we developed a story based based on on those myths and those specific elements that that usually like happened in all the different branches it everything everything started to, to take, like get into shape um and it it was just like a very slow development process and and i was just slowly fleshing it out the language was getting like better and better and more in bigger detail every time more sources were being added um with revisions to make everything flow much better started off talking about the mythology mm -hmm. um could you tell tell me a little bit i know that there so the opera has is about a uh there, there's a a goddess involved in the in the in the plot and such can you talk a little bit about what the the karite mythology that you're incorporating is and maybe where those characters came from. I know a little bit about the reconstructed Indo-European pa pantheon, but would be it would be interesting to to know like 
how you derive that part of it? Well, one of the main things that ended up being really useful for the opera is um, we were tricking, trying to figure out, okay, we our main character is going to be a priestess of some sort of, of deity. And then, of course, the question is, like, which which deity is it going to be? Which, because uh, all these, like, it's a really important choice that will affect the rest of the story and the consequences and the thematics. Um, and ultimately, we settled for the moon goddess because it felt like it was going to be a really interesting dynamic with the king who could be more like towards the sun, these kind of things. And one of the, the main advantages it also gave us is that the idea of a moon goddess in like Western Europe is, is definitely not new. Um, but it's something that most likely was actually not originally part of the Indo-European pantheon. And it's something that was actually borrowed from the substrate languages, cultures, um, societies, um, like most of the, the female deities. Um, so we actually had a lot of, of leeway and margin where we could just say like, okay, artistic liberty, we can do this, we can do that. And of course, there's typical features coming back, like, okay, goddess of the hunt could be the same person. Like, of course, if you have the moon, there's also going to be the tides. So in that sense, we just, it was kind of easy to figure out how the goddess would behave. Um, but because it's basically a story about her, it means we could say, okay, some of the details of this story have actually been imported from a local substrate uh, instead of being purely Indo-European in origin, um, which especially for this project came in really handy. There's a few other myths and, and deities that are really like very clearly Indo-European in origin and they have the typical... Um, like elements as in like, for example, the end of the world um, or like the beginning of the world, of course. Um, the typical things of, of we have like a trickster who is also involved in, in, in the arts and we have a, a thunder god, which in our version is also going to be the smith god. Um, it's There's really a lot you can do with these the elements that make everything feel connected with, for example, like the, the Roman and the Greek mythologies or, or the, the, the old Norse ones. Uh, well, it still really feels like something unique and something by itself. Um, and perhaps one of the more interesting parts is that because we decided to have the most of the mythology actually written down in like the early Middle Ages, which is I mean way past the Roman and the Greek ones, it means that we could actually uh, just change some things in in the natural course of of how a pantheon is, is perceived by its people. For example, a sun god might at the beginning be very interesting because people cannot explain the sun. But as technology and, and science and so on progresses and the need for like such a simple deity kind of disappears and then they take on different functions and those kind of things. Uh, we have the equations with like the, the Roman and the Greek deities, but also of course when Christianity arrives and it's just like a small remnant of a pagan culture um, there's also equation with you know biblical elements um, that also help to like spice up everything a bit and give it more of its own identity. I like the thoroughness to what you're doing here and really considering all the different elements, like having the principal goddess active in this play be something that's likely to come from something outside of Indo-European and that gives you some room to define things that are not actually known in real life uh, mm -hmm. about it um, while also incorporating the Indo-European gods and uh, I presume influence from Greek and Roman gods and mm -hmm. the yep. uh, 
and then Christianity later. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's really interesting. Um, talk a little bit about the opera itself. So I understand that that's that it's a chamber opera. It's only forty five minutes, so sort of a manageable project, maybe maybe less less intense than doing a full um, like a the a, a full orchestra. Um, opera. Um, can you talk a little bit about like your choices there and and sort of the the logistics of getting all that together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, basically, what I I mean, I always figured that it, the first opera, especially the first one I'm going to write, is there's no way I can write something that's going to be like an hour long or you know an hour and a half or you know as you can see in the Wagner opera, it's like four hours of opera. And it's, you know, it's just something that, that you also need to learn how to figure out the, the tension across the whole piece, across the scenes, across the acts, across everything. So I, I already decided from the beginning, like, this needs to be something manageable, both to myself and to everyone involved. And also operas, you know, you can tell a nice story even in the general, like, slow speed of an opera in 45 minutes. Um, plus the fact that for a lot of more younger people, they feel like opera moves too slowly and that they, they, they like the focus to stay, you know, into the thing for the entire, for the entire duration. Um, so in that sense, it also made, you know, it was, it was logical to figure out how we can actually have a nice story with plenty of action, plenty of dialogue uh, within a much shorter time frame. And then of course there's the, the thing between like, is it a chamber opera or is it like one for full orchestra? Um, of course, there's logistics involved, and you know, a full-on opera with the full orchestra would be amazing. But it's it's so much more expensive, not just logistically much harder as well. Um, but it's also it's also something that you cannot really like tour with, for example. Uh, if it's something that's much more chamber music oriented, uh, it's something you can say like, okay, we're like ten people uh, plus like another eleven singers. Okay, nice. Um, we're just going to go around and travel a bit and, and give shows here and there, uh, which, of course, in the case of a massive opera, is, is not an option. That's one of the, the main things. Um, logistically, it's it's really interesting how how difficult and logical everything is at the same time. Because um, a lot of the things are like, okay, we need to figure out people that want to play. We need to have singers. They need to audition. Who do we want in the leading role? Because it's going to be the heaviest one to carry, and it really needs to be there, or you know, everything just falls flat. But at the same time, there was so much enthusiasm from like so many people, and of course, like the past few days, like the moment we launched uh, the crowdfunding from the online community, like the support has been like really heartwarming. It's it's been a crazy few days with like so many questions, so many people reaching out, um, asking how they can help. Um, it's it really I'm I'm at a loss of words um, for that. But also regarding the musical thing, uh, like all the people I I pitched the idea to, they were interested in it. They thought like, oh, this is a cool idea. None of the singers were actually like scared of the language 
like the fact they had to learn something new, something they didn't quite understand, something they've never heard before. Um, how am I going to learn this? How am I going to learn to pronounce it? Um, can I learn this by heart? Do we know what everything means? Will I know what everything means in time? None of this was actually like scary or weird or, or anything for them. It felt like a challenge that they were like happy to um, to undertake and figure out how far they could go, um, how difficult everything would be. Um, and just everyone from the very beginning has just been going for it 100%. And it's, it's been a really nice project. Um, that So that last thing you said about the singers not being intimidated by the language, that dovetails into something that I thought of when I heard that this was going to be an opera and thinking about the genre of opera and how that as a vehicle for a conlang works, because from the audience side, people are used to listening to operas in another language. Mm -hmm. And maybe they, they read the translation in the libretto or, or they just enjoy the, the music itself and not worry about this, you know, if we're talking me as an American, the, the operas in German or Italian or or whatnot. So I thought I think that's an interesting choice for a conlang. And it sounds like from the performer side, there may be that sort of idea as well as, as the performers maybe they know the languages they, they usually sing in, maybe they don't, but they are used to singing in foreign languages, maybe. Definitely. Um, but once again, like the most common languages, like well, obviously English and German, Italian, French, and so on. Um, those are the languages that, of course, are the most common, but they also, most of them receive like very uh, intense coaching over like several years in, in which like a native speaker of that language really helps them refine the accent, figure out what everything means. Um, they always like have a rough understanding of what is being said, even if it's like a new text. Um, so even if they do not actively speak it, they are taught to like passively understand it. And, you know, of course, even in, if there's like a new language, like something in say like Czech, for example, um, they want to like do a, a Jana Czech opera. It's something completely new to them, but still there are like resources available. There's like plenty of native Czech speakers that can help them refine things, explain things and so on. Uh, well, if you're facing a brand new constructed language, for them, they, they have no reference point. They cannot listen to any recordings. They cannot like talk to actual native speakers. Like They completely rely in that moment uh, on the IPA and on myself, which of course give, it's, it's not as obvious. They don't feel like they have something to fall back on. Like, oh, if I'm stuck, um, I would just talk to like a native speaker and it will help me in, in like the greatest detail, or I can check this recording or there is literally no reference recording of the opera. So it's definitely a challenge, but none of them ever felt intimidated by it. Ah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So you are the conlanger, you are the composer. Well, you are one of several conlangers on the project and uh, you are no, the composer. I'm, I'm actually the, the main conlanger of the thing. Oh, okay. It's the, uh, like the, the main, the original collaboration that I talked about before the, the six years of, of collaboration, um, I mean, it's still very much a collaboration, but the main responsibility has, has mostly fallen onto me. 
And of course, like I still, I still check with him, like, okay, is this like, like, for example, say I make a list of, of sound changes for the next 500 years, and then I will like have it go past him and, and see um, if, if he agrees with everything, if he has like other ideas or suggestions and so on. But most of the initiative comes from me. Um, and then regarding translation, I've had some help of other people, um, but mostly in the sense of, for example, okay, these are all the words we need to translate that we actually don't have in our lexicon yet. Uh, which, like, what are some interesting etymologies that we can have? What are some, like, cognates we can can have um, to help me, f like, build up the lexicon? But the actual translation that happened uh, from the libretto into the conlang was actually mostly me. Okay. Um, but what I was saying is, like, so you're the conlanger, you're the composer, and you're having to play the role of a dialect coach, which mm -hmm. you're not necessarily trained for as an operatic <laughs> dialect coach, right? Uh, definitely not, no. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting to have all those roles at play. Um, going back to talking about this being a chamber opera, and when, when I said, like, and you echoed that it was sort of more manageable, but, like, I was not downgrading it in any way, but I think that might be also another thing to talk about in terms of like inspiration to other conlangers who want to do things like this is that you know there are conlangers that get hired on to movies and tv shows and big productions but in terms of a conlanger wanting to produce some sort of media it is probably a good thing to be thinking about the kinds of things that you can do. Like you are trained in music, you're trained in opera, you can compose an opera, and you chose to make it sort of not a full scale, but something scaled to where you could manage it and could find the, the funding for it. Mm -hmm. There are conlangers that have done audio dramas and of novels novels is pretty cheap to do if you had the time to do it um but and it's interesting uh one feature film that i know of that's a conlanger led you know sen but it was an independent production and they had the the means to do that but it's interesting to think about like we can do these kinds of projects in conlangs, even totally in conlangs, or with substantial sort of conworld, conculture content, sort of ourselves or with small groups of people, and produce something out of it. And I think that's really a cool thing and a, an inspirational thing for all of us conlangers out here who have our our little pet projects. Yeah, I, w I would definitely agree. Um, it's there's so many different ways that that you can actually like bring your conlang to life, and I think for a lot of people, it it's a result of, of world building as well. Um, but it doesn't. A lot of people they make a conlang because um, they enjoy doing it. They enjoy the process of making a lexicon and, and everything, but it never really sees any usage in anything, which is a shame because that, at least to me, that's the difference between a conlang that is actually 
alive and breathing as something that is technically just theoretical on, on paper. Uh, and it's, I mean, it, of course, it will feel daunting at first, but it's, it's definitely something that people should try, I think, uh, and do to the best of their abilities because it's a really fun process. Yeah. And I mean, there are definitely some people who all they want to do is do the conlang, which I think is, it's totally fine. But if people have the inclination to make these, you know, big, bigger art projects or, or media projects or anything, I think they should be encouraged. And I'm really glad that you took this initiative to make an opera out of your conlang. I, I also think that sort of your interests must have combined in a very felicitous way in that you are creating an Indo-European language that is on the Iberian Peninsula. So it is wholly appropriate for it to have operas, mm -hmm. you know. So it, it's, it ends up being like, this looks like it could be a cultural product just right out of this alternate world where Karite exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's about all we really need to cover, but uh, go to the Indiegogo for this project. Right now, as we are recording, it is at um, uh, about 3,600 US dollars, and what you sort of your first goal would be around 4,000 euro, which you're, you're sort of approaching, and... Uh, uh, we, you've got 12 days left as, as of recording. Again, I'm going to try to edit this and get this out as soon as I possibly can, um, and see if we can still give people a few days to, uh, to contribute to your project. Um, anything else you want to share about this project or anything else about sort of your conlang experience that you want to share before we go? Uh, I just want to take a moment to, to thank everyone who's basically helped in any sort of way for this project. There's been like so many people across, like over the years, um, helping with, with like little things or like all, all the tiny things. And then especially now with the crowdfunding, that like the support really has been unbelievable um and really i just want to thank all the people here who have taken the time to either share the thing or pitch in a little bit or any other way in which you can even like help for the smallest bit uh, i'm really just very very grateful and i would just want to thank everyone for their support and, and helping this project really take off all right so uh Anyway, uh, to all of our listeners, so the opera is called Heira. Uh, it's a chamber opera in Karait, a constructed language. And um, thank you, Jasper, for coming on on short notice because I just, you know, I wanted to help you get this out. And uh, thank everybody for listening. Hopefully you can go and uh, send send something uh, Jasper's way and and uh, help out with the project and uh, with that I'm going to say happy conlanging 
Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Conlangery. Conlangery is entirely supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. As little as a dollar will help us out. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Margaret Ransfield-Green, and all of those who have chosen to support us. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. You may use Conlangery episodes for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to us and you release your work under the same license. Conlangery's website was created by Bianca Richards. Our theme music is by Null Device and transcriptions of our episodes have been provided by Sarah Doparella. Casado.